The Institute of Art and Ideas is excited to announce Closer to Truth as an official partner for our upcoming How the Light Gets In Festival at Hey on Why, happening this year, May 24th to 27th. Closer to Truth examines humanity's deepest questions with the world's greatest thinkers, from Nobel laureates and renowned scientists to theologians and best-selling authors. For 20 years, Closer to Truth has explored the deep questions of cosmos, consciousness, and meaning. This year, host Robert Lawrence Kuhn journeys to new depths with their philosophy of biology season, exploring topics like evolution, race, alien intelligences, sex and gender, and much more. Get early access to full episodes from this brand new season by registering for a free membership at their website, closertotruth.com. Discover the fundamental issues of existence, engage new and diverse ways of thinking, and seek out your own answers with Closer to Truth. This episode discusses suicide in detail, which some listeners may find difficult. Hello and welcome, you're listening to Philosophy for Our Times. Suicide is a terrible but commonplace event amongst all societies within the human race. But at what point in our evolution did suicide come into being, and for what purpose? Can suicide be explained, and if so, can we provide an answer to those who become so desperate? To answer these questions, our speaker for this week's podcast is neuropsychologist and author of A History of the Mind, Nicholas Humphrey. Suicide used to be called self-murder, fellow to say, and it may seem harsh to consider it a kind of murder. If we're looking for the evolutionary antecedents of suicide, and that's what I'm into, evolutionary psychology, I think the term murder is not inappropriate. Humans have always been murderers. First, killers of other living beings. First, of course, killers of animal prey for meat. Everyone would have had a hand in that, but also killers of other humans. Not everyone would have had first-hand experience of assassination, but everyone would have known about it and talked about it. And then at some point in our history, the idea dawned. Here's how the psychiatrist, Owen Stengels, put it. At some stage of evolution, man must have discovered that he can kill not only animals and fellow men, but also himself. It can be assumed that life has never since been the same to him. Well, I'd say it's not so much the discovery that he can kill himself that would have changed things. It was the discovery of what this amounts to, that by killing himself, he can remove himself from the world. A human can choose not to be. That's why non-human animals don't and can't commit suicide. Even if they do kill themselves, as perhaps these whales did, we shouldn't call it suicide. The whales can't have been choosing death because so far as we know, they haven't discovered what death means. However, humans have done. Humans can choose death knowing pretty well what it will mean for them personally. Stengel is surely right to say this discovery must have been transformative. But we still have to ask, transformative in exactly what way? And if we're thinking about human evolution, the question must be, what effects, good or bad, did this discovery have on our own biological survival? Other kinds of killing can clearly be adaptive. It's easy to explain the survival advantages of hunting. It's not difficult to explain the advantages of homicide. 
But common sense would seem to say that self-killing must be the ultimately disadvantageous act, a sure path to genetic oblivion. Yet the stark fact is that suicide is alarmingly common. Today, no fewer than 1.4% of all deaths worldwide are attributed to suicide, making it the world's leading cause of violent death. Across the world, more people, some 800,000 per year, die from suicide than from all wars and homicides combined. Now, these figures are surely enough to make any demographer sit up and wonder. How could self-destructive behavior on this scale have been persisting at such a high frequency? The answer is not going to be simple. I think we need to distinguish two rather different kinds of suicide. And we can call them, as Durkheim did, altruistic and egoistic suicide. And I want to suggest they correspond to two very different conceptions of what death does. The first and simplest conception is that death results in the annihilation of the body. The dead person is no longer an actor in the physical or social world. And correspondingly, when people choose death to bring about their own death, they may be trying to make things better for others by giving up their own bodily presence. Captain Oates stumbled out to die in the snow in the hope of relieving the burden for the remaining members of Scott's polar expedition. That's what we can call altruistic suicide. Could that possibly be adaptive? Well, it certainly could be, provided it benefits the subject's kin or his social group. In fact, it's quite possible that a propensity for altruistic suicide could have been selected in humans in the same way that something like it has been selected in social insects, um, like honeybees or ants. Then maybe humans are genetically predisposed, just like ants or bees, to sacrifice themselves for the common good in times of famine, say, or plague or war, or simply when they become too old to carry on and become a burden on their community. But now let's look at another kind of suicide, perhaps corresponding to a second conception of what death does. Death results in the annihilation of the mind. And corresponding to this conception, when people try to kill themselves, they may be trying to make things better for themselves by giving up their own conscious presence. Judas Iscariot sought conscious oblivion because he couldn't live with his own internal sense of shame. And I think we need to call that egoistic suicide. Far from hoping to benefit others, these self-killers are motivated primarily by self-interest. They either don't care about the effect on others, or sometimes they even intend some kind of vengeance. And whether they intend it or not, the effects on family and friends are often devastating. Now here's the problem from an evolutionary viewpoint. The fact is that at least 90% of suicides are egoistical. The World Federation for Mental Health reports that the most common situations of life events that might cause suicidal thoughts are grief, sexual abuse, financial problems, remorse, rejection, relationship breakup, and unemployment. All things to do with people's personal lives. And anthropologist Charles MacDonald concludes that a cross-cultural comparison shows that grief over and conflict between closely related people, together with sheer physical pain and discomfort, causes or promotes suicide more often than any other circumstance. He concludes 
the suicide simply wants to stop hurting. Now, could this kind of suicide be adaptive, biologically adaptive? Well, no, how could it possibly be? Most egoistical suicides are young. Across the world, it's the second most common cause of death in teenagers. If they hadn't died by their own hand, these young people would almost certainly have got over the hurt and gone on to make a success of their lives. At a stroke, they've ruined their own biological fitness and that of related individuals too. At the level of biology, egoistic suicide is clearly a mistake. So what's going on? Why do these tragic deaths occur so frequently? Well, I think the explanation is actually all too obvious. It is indeed a biological mistake, but it's precisely because humans rise above biology that they can make this mistake. For at a rational psychological level, suicide may not be a mistake at all. Humans, like all animals, have an instinctive drive to escape from pain, emotional as much as bodily pain. When they feel sad or jealous or unloved or inadequate, they'll do whatever it takes to make those feelings go away. But for humans, unlike animals, the matter of how to escape has been left open to reason. Given that humans uniquely have discovered that killing themselves will put an end to their suffering, suicide can seem to be a perfectly rational solution, a reliable method of what I'll call self-euthanasia. So it's rational, and then there's also the simplicity of it. When other possible escape routes would require time and effort, suicide provides such a quick and easy solution. It requires no special expertise. In parts of Asia, people are known to hang themselves simply by kneeling and leaning into the rope. Well, as I said, it's not just rational, it's simple. And tellingly, in the real world, many suicides are in fact undertaken on the spur of the moment. A survey of 306 Chinese patients who'd been hospitalized following a suicide attempt found that 35% had contemplated suicide for less than 10 minutes and 54% for less than two hours. Moreover, the precipitating causes can be astonishingly trivial. A recent review in science about suicide in otherwise normal people opens with this example. A young mother and loyal wife, Mrs. Y, showed none of the standard risk factors for suicide. Villagers said she exuded happiness and voiced few complaints. But when a neighbor publicly accused Mrs. Y of stealing eggs from her henhouse, the shame was unbearable. Mrs. Y rushed home and downed a bottle of pesticide. It happens everywhere. In 2016, Jacinta Saldana, a nurse in charge of Princess Kate Middleton in the London hospital, hanged herself a day after accepting a hoax telephone call from a radio station. In the new world of social media, it's all too common for a schoolgirl, for example, to overdose on sleeping pills simply because she's being bullied on Facebook. Now, the trouble is that everyone has moments of despair when they feel unloved and rejected. The poet Cesare Pavese said it explicitly, everyone has a good reason for suicide. The philosopher Wittgenstein once told a friend that all his life there'd hardly been a day in which he had not thought suicide a possibility. More typically, among today's American high school students, 60% have considered killing themselves. The philosopher George Santayana said that life is worth living is the most necessary of assumptions, 
and were it not assumed the most impossible of conclusions. It seems he was speaking for too many of us. So let's stop to consider. Humans have evolved to this point. They've reached it as a result of evolving to be so clever as to understand their own mortality. It looks as though the risk of suicide must have been a major downside of cognitive evolution. Not because humans feared death, but because they were attracted to it. But surely that won't have been where evolution rested. If suicide ever became a significant drain on human fitness, wouldn't our ancestors have devised specific defenses to dissuade individuals from killing themselves? Let's suppose that the understanding of mortality, and with it the temptation to escape, arrived precipitately, let's say about some 100,000 years ago in human history. At that critical juncture in prehistory, when the idea of suicide first dawned, just how vulnerable would our ancestors have been? Well, as far as I know, no paleoanthropologist has ever thought to ask. But I'd say it's all too probable that these early humans would have been caught completely off guard. To start with, at least, they would have had no kind of immunity to suicidal thoughts. If, then, suicide were ever to have become prevalent, it could have spread like measles in an unprotected population. And indeed, measles might be an alarmingly apposite analogy, because, as contemporary evidence shows, even today, the suicide meme is highly infectious. It jumps all too easily from one mind to another. There's the well-known story of the 15 patients who hung themselves in swift succession in 1772 from the same hook in the dark passage of the hospital. <laughs> Suicide contagion has been called the Werther effect, after the hero of Werther's Gothic novel, The Sorrows of Young Werther. In the novel, Werther kills himself after falling hopelessly in love with a married woman. Following its publication in 1774, there were literally hundreds of copycat deaths in Germany. Recent research has confirmed just how strong the effect is. Every time a celebrity suicide is given exposure on television or in newspapers, the copycats follow. It's estimated that following Marilyn Monroe's death in August 1962, there were another 200 extra suicides just within a month. There are some parts of the world where today rates of suicide are 10 times the average elsewhere, and it turns out this is largely due to copying. So, to ask it again, how prevalent might suicide have been among our ancestors? Well, perhaps to begin with, the incidence would have remained relatively low. However, once humans left Africa, living conditions were set to become increasingly harsh. In the icy climate of Central Europe, let's say 50,000 years ago, with humans battling the elements and in murderous competition with their neighbors, there would have been plenty of occasion for short-term despair. If then the rate of suicide reached a critical level, it could have become epidemic. There have been several genetic bottlenecks in human history, suggesting the populations crashed almost to nothing. These have been attributed to factors such as internecine strife, to volcanic winter, or to disease. But perhaps the real cause was this worm inside the human mind. Well, as I said, who knows, but I'm serious. Human beings do crazy things. In Jonestown, in British Guiana, in 1978, 900 people drank cyanide. Still, 
here we all are today. Given that natural anti-suicide defenses were absent or slow to evolve, what else could have brought the epidemic, if there was one, under control? Well, presumably, the best hope of, devel of developing timely and transferable defenses must indeed have been human culture. Here I have to say the picture is complicated and not well researched, but at least some of the cultural barriers to suicide are indeed in plain view. In historical times, religious authorities have repeatedly issued anathemas against suicide. Medieval Christianity decreed it to be a mortal sin. Self-murderers would not be given decent burial, but rather be buried at a crossroads with a stake through their hearts. In all moderns, all modern states until recently, suicide and attempted suicide have been considered to be crimes under the common law. The successful perpetrator's possessions could be confiscated and on the unsuccessful perpetrator tried for attempted suicide, imprisoned. In the United Kingdom, attempted suicide was not decriminalized until 1961. There have also been attempts to limit the spread of su the suicide meme by limiting exposure to it. In Europe, after the effects of Goethe's book became apparent, it was soon banned. The book was banned in several countries. And in Germany, it was even forbidden to dress like young Werther in blue coat and yellow trousers. In most countries today, there are strict guidelines for the press intended to play down the reporting of suicide, to keep it off the front page and to avoid sensational headlines. Now, those are deliberate measures with suicide directly in their sight. But there are also other cultural practices that can work to deter suicide without targeting it so deliberately. One obvious and important way is by instilling beliefs that are incompatible with the premise that can make suicide so appealing, namely the belief or the hope that death will bring mental oblivion. The world over, humans have invented systems of religious belief that explicitly promulgate the idea of the mind continuing after death. And what's more, the Abrahamic religions in particular make a point of threatening that the afterlife for sinners, and suicides especially, will not be a pleasant one. Even though humans may not be set up by nature to fear the nothingness of death, there's no doubt they can be set up by culture to fear the somethingness of an afterlife. The threat of hellfire can certainly set the amygdala ringing. That undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns, it puzzles the will and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others that we know not of. Shakespeare himself wasn't much of a Christian, but he was terrified by the idea of the inhuman coldness of the afterlife. So we see culture weighing in against suicide on several levels. The measures are by and large negative ones. They're clearly not wholly effective, but there's no question they can and do work as a deterrent. But does deterrence have to be the only strategy? Wouldn't we expect more positive methods to have evolved as well? In place of punishment or censorship or threats, why not oppose a destructive mind virus with a redemptive one? The English priest Chad Burra founded the Samaritans in 1954, a group dedicated to talking suicides down simply with words of reassurance. The message, there is hope, posted on the bridge or beside the railway track, may seem to verge on the banal. But in fact, this is the one message that society has probably always been able to give with confidence. Research shows that in nine cases out of 10, the hurt isn't going to last. 
Here's Daniel Gilbert, author of the book Stumbling on Happiness. Few of us can accurately gauge how we'll feel tomorrow or next week. We expect to feel devastated if our spouse leaves us or if we get passed over for a big promotion at work. But when things like that do happen, it's soon, oh, she was never right for me, or I actually needed more time for my family. People mistakenly expect that such blows to be much more devastating than they turn out to be. Gilbert's saying is simple, don't jump now because it's not what your future self would choose. Well, have we had to wait for a Harvard psychologist to tell us this? No, thankfully we haven't. The message is implicit, presumably for a good reason, in much of the hand-me-down wisdom of our old cultures, in stories and songs and proverbs that are there to remind people, if they ever doubt it, that life is worth living after all. And the good news for our species is that on the whole, with, of course, many dreadful exceptions, hope can and does win out. What does make life worth living? I said earlier that in the course of human evolution, suicide might have been countered by an enlarged appetite for life. But I don't think so. I think it could have been found in a voice not necessarily a still and small one, much closer to home. The great object of life, Lord Byron said, is sensation. To feel that we exist, even though in pain. Is it possible that in the course of evolution, sensory consciousness in and of itself has become weighty enough to make humans pause before reaching for oblivion. But I want to finish with a passage from George Borrow's wonderful autobiographical novel, La Bengra. As Borrow tells it, he's been reading Goethe. He's himself toying with the idea of suicide. He gets into conversation with a Romany gypsy, Jasper, whom he's befriended on his travels. What is your opinion of death? said I as I sat down beside him. Life is sweet, brother. Who would wish to die? I would wish to die, says Burrow. You talk like a fool, says Jasper. Wish to die indeed. There's night and day, brother. Both sweet things. Sun, moon and stars, brother. All sweet things. There's the wind on the heath, brother. If I could only feel that, I would gladly live forever. We humans have all been there. But consider objectively just how unexpected this is. How come that for humans, these sweet things, the sun, the moon and the stars, the wind on the heath, how come these could be reasons not to kill ourselves? Can you imagine any non-human animal giving this as the reason? Well, as some of you in this room will know, my own main line of research is indeed on the evolution of consciousness, particularly sensory consciousness. I've argued that sensory consciousness lies at the core of our being. The phenomenal qualities of sensations, the qualia, the redness of red, the saltiness of salt, that have been specifically designed by natural selection to impress us with their out-of-this-world magical properties. Consciousness exists as a biological adaptation precisely so as to boost our sense of our own metaphysical importance and thus to change the value we place on our own existence. It's no accident that when we experience the sun, the moon and the stars and the wind on the heath, we do stand back in awe at the privilege of being here. I've been taken to task by critics for suggesting that any evolved biological organism could need a reason to live over and above the imperatives of life itself. Well, my answer is that humans are not any organism. They are the first to have had to wonder whether it's all worthwhile. 
I've been discussing the dark side, but if there's a bright side to the lure of death, it may be that we humans have come to live perforce in such a strikingly beautiful world. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, which was brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. If you have been affected by anything in this podcast, there is help available. Seek help. You can call Samaritans 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, on 116 123.